Luke 17, and I'll only read verses 3 and 4. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask you, Father, to please be with us. Send your Holy Spirit to fill us with an understanding of this and the uh, courage to apply it in our lives. We ask you this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. My daddy left us when I was two. I wanted a daddy so bad. I hated him for leaving me. I hated him so much I wanted him to die and go to hell. I grew up in the mountains. There is a lot of superstition in the mountains. They said if you drove a nail in a tree and spoke the name of a person while driving the nail, that person would die. There was a big pine tree near where I grew up. I went to that pine tree day after day driving nails and speaking the name of my daddy. I do not know how many nails I drove in that tree, but my daddy did not die. I hated him so much. The hatred I carried for my daddy wrecked my first marriage and is threatening my second. I am a shell of a person. I do not have any close personal relationships. This was a letter written to this woman, and it was written by a deacon in a church. And this was his personal experience of his growing up without a father. Not all of us have suffered that much. He was only two when this happened, and so it's remarkable that he would have that much hatred, but apparently he suffered a lot for not having a father. It was the Gilded Age in the 1800s, and some of the men that lived during that time were extremely powerful men, uh, probably much more powerful than any men are really in today's uh, economy in the U.S., and there were two very powerful men that together made uh, their wealth through the railroads and through the steel industry. One of them was Andrew Carnegie. And another one, you probably don't know his name, but his name was Henry Clay Frick. But Andrew Carnegie was the founder of Carnegie Steel, which later became U.S. Steel. And in 1900, at the turn into the 20th century, it was the largest corporation in the world. He had only founded his corporation about 10 years earlier, but by that time he was already a very wealthy man and he had been buying up properties and running steel mills and stuff like this and he ran them into this huge conglomerate. And the steel industry is predicated on burning a fuel known as Coke. And so it's not the Coca-Cola that you drink, it is a product that you have when you burn coal down and you burn all of the stuff that causes a lot of smoke off. And so now you have this condensed fuel, which is referred to as Coke. And so there was another man, this Henry Clay Frick, who had founded the Frick Coke Company in the Pittsburgh area. And together they formed a business relationship in 1881. Very, very successful. He went on to become Carnegie's chief operating officer and chairman of Carnegie Steel in the 1890s. But over the course of the last eight years of that corporation while Carnegie owned it, they had a parting of the ways, a falling, a falling away. And so here it is 20 years later, it's the spring of 1919. And in the spring of 1919, uh, Andrew Carnegie 
is probably dying. He knows this. And he sends a messenger. They both lived in mansions in New York City. He sends a messenger to Frick. And he says uh, that he would like to seek reconciliation with Frick before he dies. And Frick replied to the messenger, you can tell Carnegie I'll meet him. Tell him I'll see him in hell. And Meet You in Hell is a book written five years ago that chronicles their business history together. Now, perhaps they did meet in hell very soon after he stated that because within four months, Carnegie was dead, and within another four months, Frick was dead. And these men don't have a lot going for them when you read the histories of their lives. I don't believe they were Christian men. They didn't major in forgiveness. And yet Jesus said this, in the Lord's Prayer, we all know that, but yet an addendum to the Lord's Prayer, the thing that Jesus immediately spoke to was the part of the Lord's Prayer that refers to forgiveness. Forgive trespasses and your trespasses will be forgiven. And this is what Jesus said in the addendum to the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We know that heaven will be filled with forgiven people. You must be forgiven to be in heaven. And yet we also know that it will be filled with forgiving people. Because if you're not a forgiving person, you're not there. Jesus affirms that. Now, why did I choose to speak about this? I was on this Galatians series, Happy on My Path, when a month ago I, I spoke about the gospel in the first chapter of Galatians. And yet I made a passing comment, and I went back and listened to the message, and it was only a few seconds, but I'd commented on a movie I'd seen. I know that's rare, but again, I did. <laughs> but, it, but it was Amish Grace, and I had said that it was the best example I've ever seen in a movie of biblical forgiveness. So that afternoon, I got into a conversation with someone, and I was trying to explain biblical forgiveness, and yet it was difficult. And then a couple of days later, I shared that with Phil, and he said, oh, yeah, I got into a, a discussion on forgiveness that afternoon, too. And so I thought, ah, we've hit something that we really need to discuss. And Monday morning, I woke up after that Sunday. I woke up having been dreaming about it, and I knew that I needed to preach on this. I was going to do it that next Sunday, but it required a lot of research. And so I postponed it till today, and I thought it was perfect, because today is what? It's the day after Christmas, right? And so we might have been thinking about forgiveness in recent days. So that's why I chose to talk about this. Now, what I did that week is I went to the library and I checked out nine books on forgiveness. These are the ones that made the cut, these two and this one. And the other six, I pretty much put back right away when I realized that they had nothing to say about forgiveness from a biblical perspective, but these all had biblical quotes in them. And so I retained them thinking, okay, I'm going to see. Now, a few years ago, and partly why I'm also choosing to talk on this topic is Phil, I had talked to him about forgiveness because I was puzzled by some of the scriptures I read. And of course, he gave me excellent guidance and he told me that if I needed to know more, I'd read this book. Well, I looked for it, but I couldn't find it at the time. And then I didn't buy one. But a month ago, I borrowed this from Phil. And so I've read at least these four books and went through the other five or six. And uh, I just wanted to share some of what I've learned in the last few weeks because I think it's very helpful to us Christians to understand forgiveness. It is really part and parcel of Christianity. It is what we're all about or should be. 
Now, I, I want to introduce you to these books and authors. This is Dare to Forgive by a man named Edward M. Hallowell, medical doctor. And I believe I'll introduce him to you by his own words. I happen to be a Christian, an Episcopalian to be exact, but I'm writing this book from the standpoint of a secular human being, filled with doubts and questions, not the standpoint of a Christian or a believer of any kind. So you pretty much know now what I'm going to share with you from his book. The next one is Forgiving the Unforgivable by David Stoop, Ph.D. And I will introduce him to you. Now, this book actually is quite good, but it's also filled with some errors, not as bad as Dare to Forgive. But let me share you one of them. Share with you one of them here. Uh, when Jesus died on the cross, the penalty for every sin that has ever been committed and ever will be committed was paid once and for all. The sin problem has been solved from God's side of the equation. God did it all by himself without our involvement. He forgave us all our sins. Does this mean everyone is forgiven? I believe so. Then why will some spend an eternity without God? It won't be because there is some sin that has not been forgiven. It will be because some people will have failed to be reconciled to the forgiving God. What is left now for each of us is to enter into the reconciliation process with the forgiving Savior. That begins with our showing godly sorrow over our sinfulness. And let me read you another part in here also. And this is kind of that philosophy in action. He's counseling a young man in a group setting, and the young man is kind of bitter. He admits that he's anxious and depressed. And I asked, uh, oh, I'm sorry, and uh, he shared with us that a big part of it was that one of his pastors had hurt him deeply and refused to acknowledge that he has done so. I asked the young man why he didn't just forgive the pastor and go on with his life. And he said rather strongly that in order for him to forgive, the pastor had to repent of what he'd done. I said to him, I don't like your God. He looked at me startled and asked me why I would say such a thing. I don't like it that your God requires you to do something as an act of obedience, but then makes it impossible for you to do what he requires unless someone else cooperates. So I wanted to share that with you. Now, I'm not condoning that young man's state of heart or mind, but what I'm telling you is that this man wasn't giving him the best of advice. Now, the last one that I got at the library that I think is actually quite good, this one is Choosing Forgiveness by Nancy Lee DeMoss. And I didn't find any serious uh, error in this one at all. Um, I would still recommend From Forgiven to Forgiving, Jay Adams, though. I mean, this is excellent. Um, and it's funny, I, I have no quotes from it, but I have, some, I have some illustrations and some odd quotes from the others. Now, let me get to my text. It's very, very simple. This is a topical sermon, and so I'm not going to spend all of the time focused just on the two verses I read to you, Luke 17, 3 and 4. But I do want to spend some time on those because I think they're very, very helpful for us to understand. It's very simple. Jesus very succinctly describes the normal process of forgiveness that should be occurring in the church. He says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. I want to use a visual illustration of this that hopefully you can always remember. If your brother sins against you, sins against you, rebuke him. So you're confronting that sin. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. 
If he repents, forgive him. Okay? If he sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. This is Christianity in a nutshell, really. This is us all getting along day to day, week to week, month to month. That's the essence of Christianity, forgiveness. Now, before I go on to address things that get a little bit more complicated, make it a little more difficult to work through forgiveness, after all, that's why this all began, because I was trying to figure it out, I want to address what I consider five common fallacies of forgiveness, biblical forgiveness. The first one that was in all nine of the books I checked out of the library, except for this one, she confronts it. But the error in all of them is that pretty much everybody recommends that you must forgive for your own sake. It's in your best interest that you forgive. And most of the secular people obviously just stop there. I mean, why should you do anything for anybody else? You are the center of the universe, so therefore you should do everything to please yourself. So I'm not saying that forgiving isn't good for you. There have been many medical studies in the last 10, 20 years that have shown that forgiveness is good for you. People that forgive, that are forgiving, live longer, they live healthier, they they live more joyful, peaceful lives. It's just the nature of keeping all of that anger bottled up inside of you that leads to lots of problems for people. I'm not saying that that's not true. That is true. That's not why you should be a forgiving person, though. We know that. Ultimately, we are to be forgiving people because our God is a forgiving God, and we are to emulate him. Now, secondly, many of them say that forgiveness is a long, drawn-out process. And what do we say? Hui. It's not. The Bible in no way describes it as a long, drawn-out process. You know what is long and drawn-out? Our sinful hearts. That's what's long and drawn-out. It's us giving in to the temptation to not forgive that is long and drawn-out. And here's where I want to introduce you again to uh, Dr. Hallowell. Dr. Hallowell uh, met this 52-year-old woman by the name of Louise. She told me of her dilemma. My mother is dying. I don't know how many more months she has. My problem is that I hate her. So why did you come to see me, I asked. Because for the first time in my life, I have no idea what to do. My mother is dying. I hate her, and I don't know what to do. Louise was the founder and chairperson of a highly successful investment firm outside Boston. She liked her work, and she did it well. My job, as I saw it, was not to prescribe forgiveness or medication, but to join Louise and be there as she struggled with her feelings. We would see where they would lead us. They led us into several years of psychotherapy. Her mother died a few months after our first meeting. She had, he had nothing good to say about her resolving her feelings against her mother. All he saw was that she's a big successful analyst and he's going to get re- w- uh, wealthy by having her continue to come to him week after week after week after week after week after week, giving him lots of money, no doubt. I just thought, wow, this guy put this in this book. I, I was just horrified. But that, again, I, I mean, he's, probably, he's a very nice guy. Look, I mean, he's got a bright smile, cheerful disposition. <laughs> I'm sure he's a great guy, but I wouldn't want to send anybody to him for counseling. We all know that an unforgiving heart is filled with wrath, don't we? 
filled with wrath. This 52-year-old Louise was filled with wrath, and he had nothing to offer her to try and get rid of that wrath, get over that wrath, get beyond it. Now, another common error, and it's actually in both of these books, again, not in the other two, but it's in all the others, is you also must practice forgiving yourself. Because forgiveness really does start with you. It starts in you. It starts with you forgiving yourself for various evil things you may have done to other people. Again, that's bunk. It's stupid. You love yourself. That's the long and short of it. Even those people that kill themselves love themselves. They love themselves so much that they want the pain to stop this instant. And I'm going to do it by killing myself. So people love themselves. The problem is not that they uh, uh, don't like themselves or hate themselves. The fact is they've sinned against God and only God can absolve them of that guilt that they feel inside. So all of this, they each have a whole chapter devoted to forgiving yourself. It's just don't even read it. And the reason I'm partly doing this is that I'm sure that many of us have read some stuff like this and we can get confused if we stray from the Bible, because there's so much out there that's unbiblical that claims the name of Christ, that quotes scriptures. David wrote in Psalm 51, against you, you only, have I sinned. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that we don't sin against one another? No, he doesn't mean that. But what he means ultimately is that the reason sin exists is that you have been made in the image of God. I cannot sin against an animal. I can mistreat an animal, I can abuse an animal, but I cannot sin against it because that animal was not made in the image of God. That's where our culture gets it wrong. If you were to ask the average person on the street, can I sin against an animal? I'll bet half of those that believe in sin that it is possible would, would say, yes, you can sin against an animal, but you can't. Only by having the image of God in you, being made in his image, is it because sin even exists. So see, sin exists by definition because we are made in the image of God. Now, the next one is that we are to forgive and what? Everybody knows this. We're all supposed to forgive and forget, right? No, no, not in the way that you might think. So let's talk about forgiving and forgetting. First, let me give you an illustration of how hard it is for you to forget something. I'm a very forgetful person. I forget everything. But if you told me to forget something, I'll bet I'd never forget it. There was a king. And like all kings, he had a kingdom and he had wise men on his staff. Because kings aren't necessarily the wisest people in the land. They're just ones with all the power. He had heard that there were other kings that had been successful at converting lead into gold. And he wanted in on this. And he really felt that his wise men were letting him down. So he called his wise man in and said, wise men, you have this week to turn some lead into gold or it's off with your heads. So the wise men go back and sweat about this and he brings them, the three of them back in. And the first one says, king, I, I can't do this. Off with his head. The next guy hymns and haws off with his head. The next guy just walks up there and says, yes, king, you have to mix, you know, three toad gizzards with seven, you know, peacock tails, blah, blah, blah. And he's very proud of himself. And so he seeks to be excused. And he says, oh, king, and by the way, when all of those are being mixed, you must not think of an elephant. 
And so he never turned any lead into gold because every time he got them mixed, he'd think of an elephant and it wouldn't work. So see, we are forgetful humans, but yet we can not choose to forget. It just isn't possible. You're human, that's the way God made you. And so when we hear of God forgetting, did he forget? No. Forget is a euphemism. It's a, it's a euphemism for this, that you are choosing by your forgiving someone of something. You are f- promising three things. You are promising that you will not bring this up with that person again. You will not hold their feet to the fire over this offense. You have forgiven that offense and you will not bring it up again to rub their noses in it. Even if they do the same thing next week. That's the point of forgiveness. And we'll get to this in more detail. First promise, you will not bring it up with them. Second promise, you will not bring it up with others. You've forgiven them of it. You will not badmouth them to others. The third thing is you will not brood over it. And all of this is in regards to bringing it up for the purpose of meditating on it and stewing in it and getting negative about it. None of this should occur when you have forgiven it. You have absolved that person of that sin, and it should be done history over and done with. Now, that leads us to something else, though, and it leads us to another problem that comes up with this whole forgetting business, and that is people that assume that when I have forgiven something, I must forget it, they think, because it's a widely held misconception, that what has happened is that relationship has been restored to exactly as it once was, that there has been full reconciliation now that I have forgiven them of that. But that's not true. That's not what is meant by forgiveness. If someone in a marriage, a husband or a wife, commits infidelity, and yet it is now at a state where it has been forgiven, it's over and done with, it's water under the bridge, does that mean that the person who was cheated on will have the same level of trust that they had before that had begun? No, it's not possible. And you can't expect that of yourself. The offender can't expect it of the one that was offended, nor can the offended expect it of themselves. That trust must be re-earned. And you will do that by establishing hedges in this relationship. You will do that by whomever cheated, always checking in with the one that they cheated on. Say, hey, here I am, here I am, here I am. I'm not cheating on you. That's essentially what they're saying. They're not saying it in words, but they're saying it in their conduct. I want you to develop trust in me. I love you. I want to see this marriage work. I'm calling you to affirm my love for you. So that's how that's to be handled. So full forgiveness does not necessarily mean full reconciliation. That can take time and will take time. But it's a goal that we should have. That's God's purpose in doing this whole thing is to establish reconciliation is to have people back loving one another. Now, the next one, which I think we all face, the temptation to believe this, is that forgiving someone will only encourage them to continue to do it. I don't want to forgive them because if I forgive them, then they'll just do it again. And Paul addressed this in Romans when he talked about how it easy it is for sin to be covered over by the blood of Christ. But they said, oh, let us sin that grace may abound then. He says, oh no, oh no, that's not it at all. Just because the covering over the sin is easy does not mean that the sin should be indulged in. It's not a good thing. It's still an evil thing. And so just as whatever it is that you're forgiving someone for was an evil thing, it's still an evil thing. Just because you've forgiven them doesn't mean that they are 
uh, free to do it again and again and again because God has said, because frankly, the forgiveness will end, right? You're in a relationship with this person. You're in a position to be able to be sinned against. If it cannot lead to reconciliation, it will eventually lead to alienation. If you refuse eventually to take serious your repentance, it's a farce. You're doing it because you think that they have to do this. It's like during the Second World War when the Germans would would say to the Christians, you must do this or you must do that because that's what your Bible says. They're just trying to manipulate these Christians, these poor Christians that don't really understand that the Germans are just using, using the weapons of Christianity against them. No, no. We must understand that God means for things that are working well. If someone is using a ruse of forgiveness, then you don't have to fall for that. You just say, I'm sorry, but we've gone down this road and you say that you're repenting and yet I can see that you're not. When Jesus himself confronts this, as we'll see soon, it's a little bit different and we'll get to that. Now, there are more things that I want to talk about regarding forgiveness. I've just gone through what I called five fallacies of forgiveness. And what I want to talk about now are variations or extensions bringing in more verses relative to the Luke 17 passage that I read to you. And what was it? Someone sins against you. You rebuke them. They repent and you forgive. That's the typical normal Christian process. So now let's talk about six additional things about forgiveness that are important. The first was this concept of the repeat offender that Jesus addresses in the very next verse. What I've done with my hands is verse three, but what we haven't focused on is verse 4. And if he sends against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, of course, words are cheap. And so this isn't a magic formula that we're talking about here. This isn't just because I said this, you must do that. No, that's not the way God works. And, and that is what weak Christians, people who are trying to manipulate Christianity, will try to do to you. They'll try to make it into a magic talisman. Pull it out. Ha, I did this. Now you have to do that. I was in a lady's house in L.A., and I heard her take a phone call, and then she hung up, and then she explained it to me. I didn't ask her. I wasn't nosy. But she just said, that was a friend of mine. She was calling to see if I agreed. And this is a black woman. And I said, agreed about what? She said, I don't know. She didn't share that, but I just needed to agree because we needed to agree on this because now we've bound that. That's what Bible said, didn't it? If we're two or three more agree on this, then God will come in there. He's in there. So see, now she's agreed with this woman about this thing that was stated. She doesn't even know what the issue was, but she agreed with her friend so that it could be bound in heaven as it was on earth. It's just magic talisman. It's just pulling out the rabbit's foot. It's just a different way of doing that same thing. That was the first concern is this repeat offense. So now we all know ourselves. We all know we have pet sins. We hate them, but we know that at times we indulge in them. We know that at times we get defensive over them. And yet, when you come to the one you've offended and you repent, then they must forgive. That's the way Christianity works. They'll be tempted to tell you, oh, no, 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 no. We've been down this road before. I know, I'm tired of this road too. But that's the way sin is. Sin wears us down. It wants you to abandon the road that Christ commands you to take. And you have to say, no, there are no, there are no other roads that get you any place better 
So stay on that road. Don't give up that road just because it's hard. Now, the next one is the else. What is the else of the clause? Let me read 17.3. Take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents. So what happens? Offense, rebuke, what comes next? What's supposed to come next? Repentance, right? But what often comes next? Right? (laughs) Retaliation. You can't tell me what to do. Get out of my face. You're just as evil as me. And then it's just this huge fight. You, you, you know, you're no longer anywhere near to this. You're, you're, you know, so you're now you're both in, they're, they're, you're laying siege to one another's kingdoms, right? You're lobbing bombs at one another. You're so far from where God wants you to be because of that initial retaliatory strike. Now, it's true. It's true that the rebuke might not have been phrased as well as it could have been, Right? We, after all, we've got the moral high ground at this point. I've been sinned against. Yeah, you know, we could do it too. We bring it on. I did the right thing. I rebuked them. I rebuked them good, right? And we've got to resist those temptations. When I believe, well, I'm a, uh, I, I don't want to go there yet, but I, I'll, I'll get to this in a bit. There's something else I want to share about that. So that's why Jesus in Matthew 18 gave us these escalation procedures. Okay, this has happened. This has happened. This has not happened. So now you go to someone that you respect and you explain the situation. You say, I want to include you in this because I think I'm in the right. They might tell you, you're not in the right. You're probably in the wrong. Let's get together and talk about it. But they might say, well, I see from your perspective that you perhaps are in the right. So then they get you together and they say, is this what happened? They get the details first because we all know that the first one to tell their story is the one that has perhaps left out some essential details of the story. Once it's clear, though, that repentance should be given, then that's where the witnesses come in, and that's where the matter escalates. Now, who are we dealing with here, though? We're not dealing with people in the world at this point, not supposedly. We're dealing with Christians who have agreed to bind themselves by the Bible and by the processes that are defined in the Bible. And if at this point they refuse to do this, they are disavowing themselves from Christ and his word. They're saying, no, either I'm not a Christian or I'm not going to do this. It's one of the two. They're either a Christian and they are hardening themselves in sin or they're not a Christian. But either way, it can escalate to the point where they get tossed out of the church. Now, when they get tossed out of the church again, you're either tossing out a non-Christian who probably should have never been in the church in the first place. It's just they wanted to be and they had, a, they had a credible testimony, and so they were let in. Or it could be that they are a Christian, and they are fighting against God. And by tossing them out of the church, they are being tossed back into Satan's kingdom for discipline's sake. And those people, if they're truly believers, it is the job of the elders of the church to toss them out into the world that God will use Satan to discipline them. That's the role of the escalation procedures. So that's the second thought about forgiveness. What happens if the if doesn't happen? You know, there is no repentance. Now, the next one I want to share is this. In Proverbs 19.11, we're told, it is a glory to overlook a transgression. It is to a man's glory, to his credit, to overlook a transgression. And uh, what is it that we do in overlooking a transgression? Are we violating God's pattern? A sin occurred, this is the rebuke, but I'm not doing that, am I? What am I doing instead? 
that. I'm bypassing this. I'm bypassing this. I'm just doing this. This is why many people confuse this with this. Because they're jumping to the conclusion that is handled 90% of the sins anyway. We all love one another. Those of us in our family should really be practicing this more than anything because we live with these sinful people. We know their sins. We tolerate their sins. But at points, even though we're tolerant, they flare up, don't they? So then this is necessary. That's necessary to get it back together. And it might not happen in a few minutes. It might take a day. It might take a few days. It shouldn't. We're Christians. It shouldn't. But we know that it does at times. Now, another one, and this one is the one that I believe I asked Phil about a couple years ago. And this is another one that people use to describe, to subvert my hand thing. And it is the deaths of Jesus and of Stephen. And let me read you just the phrases that, that are referred to. It's Luke 23, 34 and Acts 7, 60. Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Stephen said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. So what people say is that Jesus and Stephen forgave their killers right then. But did they? Did they? Did we see forgiveness at work in the deaths of Jesus and Stephen? No, we did not. We saw that they were ready to forgive. We saw them each individually plead with God to forgive but they didn't even speak to their killers. There was no consummation of forgiveness in that act. True, Jesus and Stephen both came to rest about this. They had no wrath in them. They were giving it all to God, saying, God, please, please forgive these people for what they're doing. But yet the forgiveness would have been if those people were involved in it somehow, and they weren't. And so that is not a good illustration of forgiveness at work as a, as a normative method for us as Christians to deal with those that offend us. Another matter is that they were both dying. They were not going to have the opportunity to personally be asked by these men if they came to a time of repentance. They were not going to have an opportunity to give them the forgiveness that would have been requested at that point. And so they paid it forward. They gave their forgiveness at that moment. But the forgiveness wasn't experienced. It wasn't received. Those people had to wait to receive that forgiveness from God sometime later. It didn't happen right at the moment that Stephen and Jesus spoke because they were speaking to God, not to these, not to these people. Now, the last one is a big one. The last one has to do everything I've been talking to you about so far is those within the body. We could say that the killers of Jesus and Stephen were outside the body, and I would agree and yet, I've also said that that really wasn't a good example of, of forgiveness actually taking place. But the last one I want to talk about is what about dealings with such unbelievers that they're not going to go with us to the Bible? They couldn't care less what I had to say about the Bible. Well, I'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. Now, I, I got ahead of myself. One thing I wanted to point out uh, about the, uh, I, I had referenced uh, Proverbs. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I skipped one. Mark eleven twenty five. 
uh, Jesus said this, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That was in the context of someone standing and praying. He said, when you are standing and praying to God, and if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. And so my question is, does this then undermine all the other issues of forgiveness that I've been talking about? Does it somehow mean that because you're now praying that there are different rules that apply? We all know the answer to that, right? No, never have different rules that apply in different circumstances such as this. What I believe is being spoken of in this situation is this. You are in prayer. You are wanting your prayers to be heard by God and you're pleading with God and God pricks your conscience. Remember, they, we had these two methods of dealing with this, right? The sin, the rebuke, the repentance, the forgiveness, or the sin and the forgiveness. But what happens if you thought this had happened, someone had sinned against you and you thought you had forgiven them, but here you are and God is bringing it up in your mind that you have not forgiven them. You've not done what the Bible calls you to do. You are harboring a grudge in your heart against a person and it's because of something they did to you. It's something they did to you that you chose not to confront them on or if you did confront them on it, it probably wasn't with a rebuke. It was retaliatory attack, and now you two are at loggerheads. That should be dealt with. You've not done either of the two ways that he said it's, it's valid. And so what he's saying is, because it's messed up, because you chose not to address it already, address it now. Now is the time when you're supposed to deal with that, when God pricks your conscience about it. Because what are you going to do otherwise? You're going to quench that working of the Holy Spirit in you. You're going to try to shut God down inside of you. And do you know what might happen? He might let that happen. And you don't want that to happen. You don't want God shutting down inside of you. That's the whole reason we're Christians. It's the joy of being Christians, being alive in this flesh as forgiven Christians. So we must do what he said. Anybody, anything. When God has brought it up, and it's long been gone. Now, you might be able to try to go the, the route, the first route, if that's the proper way. But you must be committed to do that in that instant. You must address it. You can't just let it go. God's reminding you for that reason. So now, we've already talked about reconciling with believers. We've talked about Jesus and Stephen and their deaths. We've talked about how Psalm 51 is speaking of sin all being against God because all men are created in his image. I want to now deal a little bit with the unbelievers. They will not use the Bible to address your relationship. You might try to get them to do it. That's certainly not a failure to do the right thing. You want to, but if they won't, what do you do? Well, there are other verses, and we know this, that cover these instances, and I want to read them. Let me turn to Romans 12. Romans 12, and I'll read verses 17 to 21. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire 
on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To the degree that we refuse to do this, and I believe we all refuse to do this, at least in part in our lives, uh, to the degree that we refuse to do this, we're disobeying God. And we should not be doing that. We're participating in sinful behavior, sinful actions. So believers and unbelievers, we all must look at differently. We hold believers to a higher degree of conduct. The rules apply to them. The rules apply to the unbelievers too. They just reject them. It reminds me of when I was a kid. I would go down one whole summer. I would go down to this lake that that was a mile from my house and we would all play wiffle ball day in, day out. And I can't tell you how many games ended in a dispute over the rules or over... Now, I don't know if you understand what wiffle ball is, but wiffle ball, you hit with a plastic bat and a plastic ball and we're all probably 11, 12 years old. And so we pick up teams, we're playing in this open field, and we're hitting. Now in wiffle ball, you can throw the ball at someone to get them out. Well, it's a plastic ball. It's not hard. It isn't sharp or anything. And so the person that's running might not feel it. So you throw it at them, and where are all their teammates? All their teammates are either on bases or over here back behind home plate. So they don't have the best eye on seeing the runners and seeing whether the thing got them out. And so if you're unchristian, non-Christian, like I think practically all of us were, You, as the person that threw the ball, are tempted to shade the truth and saying, I hit you, when it might not have hit them. And the person who's running is tempted to shade the truth, did not, did so, did not. Game's over. We can't go on. Not with these cheaters, you know. We were probably all a bunch of cheaters, but, but yet at that time, the game would end. So see, you have people that will play by the rules, perhaps for a time, until the rules impinge upon their freedom. Then they don't want the rules anymore. I want my way, and you're not giving me my way, so I'm taking the highway home. That's the way we are. And even in the church, when we try to bring Matthew 18 to bear, when we try to bring this process to bear, we can reject it. We can come off the tracks. So when we're dealing with unbelievers, we shouldn't be surprised because half the times when we're dealing with believers, the same happens. But we must be prepared to deal with them in this way. Deal with them as sinners. Deal with them as God dealt with us, with mercy, with forgiveness, with kindness. Now, I want to, I've kind of gotten through then the the five fallacies, the six aspects of forgiveness I wanted to cover. There are two common misunderstandings that I want to address. First, and we've already addressed this, but I just want to make sure and hammer it home. Forgiveness is not typically unilateral in its action. It's not just you. Now, granted, the this and this one is, and that's by far the most common. It should be occurring within all of our relationships all the time. So that one is normative. That one is common. But what I'm talking about is the forgiveness where there's obviously been an offense, and there obviously should be a rebuke and repentance and forgiveness. And yet too often, That is not done because many people say it's not necessary. You should be a grown-up Christian. You shouldn't require repentance of anybody. Nor, by the way, do you need to rebuke anybody. See, so we both win. The person who's been offended doesn't have to go through that confrontational aspect of, I need to go confront that person now. Oh, no, you don't need to do that. You just need to forgive. You just need to forgive. It'll all go away. God washes it all away. 
No rebuke required, no repentance required, just forgiveness, just love, love, love. That's not normative. That's not normative. And I want you all to remember that. Now, what is normative is, yes, is minor sins, forgiveness. And that's what Jay Adams refers to as the covers of love not getting thrown off. This type of sin occurs in the bed. Your wife kicks you in the bed, knees you in the bed, whatever. Or I do that to her, most likely. When we were newly married, I was, she found me strangling her one night. You know, <laughs> We men have to get used to having someone in the bed with us that isn't an enemy. You've got to fight. But, uh, but yet, that is the norm in a relationship. But yet, when you're talking about sin be- amongst people, between people, the rebuke is required. The repentance is required. That's normative. And the Bible declares it so. The word... Forgive occurs in the Old Testament of the New King James 44 times. Twelve of the times, in the same verse, you have it preceded by atonement. There is atonement, there is forgiveness. There is atonement, there is forgiveness. And then later, that's mostly in Leviticus and Numbers, and then later in Isaiah and in Psalms, you have God hears your prayers, God forgives you. God hears your prayers, God forgives you. There's always some action on the part of the penitent that is at work here, leading to forgiveness. And even the other, uh, however many, 20 times, when you examine them here or atonement and stuff, that's, that's all around there. Or they're speaking of forgiveness kind of in the abstract. They're not speaking of an occurrence of it, but just the, the topic. Now, the second misunderstanding that I want to cover is the one I already addressed, and that is that full reconciliation is assumed based on forgiveness. And that's not true. That's not a biblical understanding of forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness clears the ground such that reconciliation can occur. Forgiveness clears out the rubble from the war such that new construction can begin. So don't think because there's been forgiveness that all is better, all is good. It's not that way. Now, I've talked about this at length. We've got the offense, we've got the rebuke, we've got the repentance, we've got the forgiveness. It, re- it reminded me, as I was reflecting on it, it's so simple, right? It's so simple. But yet each one of these can fail. It reminds me of watching people like on a go-kart track. And they're relatively novice. I mean, not everybody has a big go-kart track, so not everybody is very skilled at racing a go-kart around a track. So if you're watching... People are all bumping into each other. They're turning corners and they're crashing in the hay bales. And that's life. That's the life of this simple stuff. Running a go-kart around the track is easy, right? You just go around this corner this way, this corner that way. All you have to do is steer and, and pump the brakes and the gas pedal. But then you get all those other people out there. And then you get competitive. And then you start running into people. And pretty soon everybody's careening off the track. And that isn't really what the go-kart track owner wants happening, but it does, and so he has to deal with that reality. But that's what happens here. You see, we have this, this offense, and we have the person who should be rebuking <coughs> refusing to do so. What do they do instead? Well, they should know they offended me. I'm not going to tell him. He'd better figure it out. And he'd better, right? Because you're going to treat him very differently than you did a few minutes ago until he figures it out. You're not choosing to rebuke. The godly thing is to rebuke. And we men need that. We need to hear it. We're we're very dense at times. We're very selfish. And we aren't aware of what we've done to offend you. It takes us time, years of marriage, to understand exactly when we're offending you in this way. So please don't give us the silent treatment. 
please talk to us. Rebuke us kindly. And then we'll repent as we should, and you'll forgive as you should. So that's where it can break, right? The rebuke doesn't come. Or offense. Rebuke, right? That's what we want to do. It's retaliation time. And so that can occur here. Offense, rebuke, retaliation, not, not repentance. Oh, but you, you deserve it. You deserve it. You know, you're rebuking me. You deserved what happened. Oh, well, okay. Now we're off the track. Go-karts. <laughs> ball of flames. Now, there is something that's occurring here that we really all must see very clearly. And that is this. And I believe Psalm 86.5 is what sums it up. Very few words, and I think you'll understand it. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. What does that verse mean? And how are we to emulate God in this? When this occurs, offense, rebuke, who are we talking about here? We've got the offender and we've got the offended. So we've got these roles to play. So we've got the offense, we've got the response being the rebuke, we've got the proper behavior being the repentance, and we've got the proper behavior being the forgiveness, right? So we've got roles to play here. But what happens when they break down? What happens when this happens, when they refuse to repent, they refuse to forgive? The person that brought the rebuke is the person that does the forgiving in the place of the repentance, okay? When you bring that rebuke, the kind rebuke that we should bring, you've got the forgiveness ready in your other hand. You've come there already in your heart having forgiven that person. If you come like that, then your rebuke will most likely be accepted. That's the key to the success of this. It's in the response of the offended. When you rebuke, you rebuke kindly, and you rebuke ready to forgive. I want to remind you of two Bible stories. I was a Christian for a long time before I understood the book of Jonah. We think the book of Jonah is so simple, and yet its real meaning can elude you. The real meaning is very simple, but you just don't necessarily get it when you read that book. God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh and deliver a rebuke. God wanted what? What do we all know the hand symbol is? Can you do the hand symbols with me? God was offended by Nineveh. Come on. Oh, boy, you guys are chickens. Okay, God was offended. He sent Jonah to rebuke them. What did God want? Repentance. What did Jonah want? Ah! <laughs> Retaliation. Jonah did not want to go because he knew where God was going with this. This is what God was going to do. This is what Jonah was going to have to do. And he didn't want to do that. He refused to rebuke because he was unwilling to forgive. He knew where this was going. He knows God. He knows God as a merciful God. He will not participate in this travesty of justice. These Ninevites were evil, 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 evil. And he wasn't going to be a party to forgiving them for what they had done. So he ran away. And we all know how well that worked out for him, didn't we? 
The second story is Joseph and his brothers. At 17, Joseph was sold into slavery, and they saw him coming from afar. They, they, uh, they take him, they throw him in a pit. Reuben, meanwhile, hopes to rescue him, but yet Reuben apparently goes off. Judah, in the meantime, sells him to these Ishmaelites that are heading to Egypt. And so he's disappeared. He's gone. They take his jacket that they loved stripping off of him because that was a sign of his preeminence over them. They covered it with blood and took it to Jacob. Said, oh, look what's happened, Joseph. You figure it out for yourself. So now we have Joseph down in Egypt. And he uh, ends up working for Potiphar, the, uh, the uh, chief, essentially the, 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 what do they call him in the military? The chief of staff of the military, the commander-in-chiefs. He's working for that man. That man loves him. He's a good man. But his wife goes after him. He runs away. He's falsely accused. He's in prison. In prison for probably 12 to 13 years. He does this, uh, this dream thing with the baker and the, and the candlestick maker. And, and then pretty soon he's out. Uh, the, the candlestick maker's out. It's the butler, I know. He's the butler. He gets out. The baker dies. The butler gets his job back. But so now... We have him remembering, bringing Joseph out, and Joseph is made the second highest man in the land. And now we have all of Jacob's sons, all 10 of them that were there that day when they were going to kill him and when they threw him in the pit and when they sold him. They're all there standing before him. What amazing opportunity for vengeance. You can't write, you can't script it better than that. But what does he do? From the moment he saw them, he had forgiven them already. He he immediately knew what he was going to do. Now, what's interesting here, and I think we'll not get into it now because it would take a while, but, but what we have here is a picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. He is attempting to figure out their hearts. And we have a beautiful uh, example of reconciliation at work. Judah. Do you remember what Judah had done at the pit? It was Judah's idea to sell him. Judah is the one that said, hey, let's not kill him. Let's profit from him. Let's sell him to these guys. And And they did. Judah is the one that had sold him into slavery. And here Judah was up at home in in Israel to Jacob, saying, we can't go back. He asked us all these questions. He knows about Benjamin. Benjamin hadn't gone down on the first trip. Benjamin is his only remaining son from Rachel, whom he loved. He's not sending Benjamin. Jacob said, get back down there. Benjamin's not going. No, father, we have to take Benjamin. Meanwhile, Simeon's been down in Egypt running in prison. Jacob couldn't care less, I guess, about him, but he is not sending Benjamin down. But now they're all going to starve to death. He sends Benjamin. What does he do? Joseph orchestrates the taking of Benjamin. Now he says, oh no, just Benjamin's coming back with me. He's out there. He's found the silver chalice. He's going to drag Benjamin back to Egypt. Next scene, they're all back there in Egypt. And Judah is interceding for Benjamin, saying, Take me instead. The one who had sold him out of that pit said, Take me. 
And Joseph said, oh, no, I don't need you. I'm taking Benjamin. But could Joseph have the heart to follow through on that statement? No. You know what he does then? He breaks down and he weeps. He has all the Egyptians leave, and he declares to himself, to them, that he is Joseph. He is their brother. They are dismayed, the text says. They are aghast at this. They think he's going to get even still. He's just been playing them all this time. That's what they think, because they think like the sinners that they are. But he says, how is my father? And it it never comes up. It never comes up. 17 years later, Jacob is now dead. And the first thing that his brothers think to do is go to him and say, you know, before father died, he told you to forgive us. They're worried about their own skin still, 17 years later. But what does he do? He says, that's all water under the bridge. He had done this with the biggest sin against him in his life. He had done this. They had never, he had never had the chance to rebuke them. They had never had the chance to repent, but he forgave them because he saw where God had gone with this. Now, this story that I just related to you takes 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. In a 50-chapter book, he uses 14 chapters to tell you this story of redemption. This story is important. This story is central to the Bible because this is the story of Christ. Joseph is Jesus in this story, and he forgave. He was served up a piping hot plate of vengeance, and he refused to partake of it. Take that away from me. That's not what I'm here for. That's not what I'm all about. That's not why God has done all of this. Vengeance is biblical, however. Vengeance is retributive punishment. It is a specific form of justice. Our culture might think that vengeance is beneath a civilized society, but it is not. 44 times, just as forgiveness, isn't it ironic? 44 times the word vengeance occurs. Now, this is in both Old and New, but 41 times in the Old Testament, only three in the New. But let me give you two from the Old. Isaiah 35, 4, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Ezekiel 25, 14. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. God believes in vengeance and he practices what he believes. But you say, well, okay, 41 times in the Old Testament. The new ones can't be that bad. Oh, let me read you from 2 Thessalonians 1. It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That is God's vengeance that will be laid out upon the earth. But, and this is a huge one, where is vengeance? In God's hand. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine, 
and recompense. Eight verses later, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. That is the gospel in a nutshell, right in Deuteronomy 32. Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So God commands us to not take vengeance and not hold any grudges. I want to ask you all a question, and I want you to think about it for a second before you th answer it in your head. I don't, have, I don't have to have you answer it verbally. Are you a forgiving person? And what you have to do is plumb the depths of your heart and see if there are grudges there. If there are grudges there, then you're not going to be in the top 10% in the answer to that question. Are you a forgiving person? Now, let me test you with three real stories that come out of these books. Beautiful stories of forgiveness, in part. One is, in some ways, trivial, but yet it was one of the most beautiful that I read. There is a dinner, a big engagement in Washington, D.C., and there is a senator there, a famous senator there, and he's going to speak before these 500 people. And this is one of those dinner talks. So he's going to talk at the end of the dinner. Well, desserts have gone around, and as the desserts are being removed, a waitress dumps a dessert on this man. This man now has this lemon cake with a, a drizzle on it all over his suit. She's mortified. And so she gets these things and she's cleaning them off and she's profusely apologizing over and over and over again. He's already forgiven her. And yet before she leaves, he says, come here. And he puts his lips to her forehead. He's sitting at his table. She's been cleaning him off and he does that to her. And she left beaming. She has been forgiven in a way that words would never have forgiven her. He just wanted her to remember something a little bit better than what had just happened. And so in forgiveness, he just lightly touched his lips to her forehead to, to show her, to demonstrate to her that he had absolutely no hard feelings against her for what had happened. And it said she went from that room beaming. The person that wrote this was there and spoke of it in, in her book. Now another one. This one is also in this book. A man whom uh, she knew the daughter of, loses his wife in a surgery. She had had a minor heart attack, and fearing that she had had a heart attack, they took her to the hospital, and they said, sure enough, you've had a heart attack, you've got these partial blockages of your heart, we recommend an angioplasty. So right then, they take her to the room for an extremely common surgery, and she dies. And the surgeon that was to fill the balloon up to, block, to get the blockages out of the arteries Filled the balloon up too soon. Her heart went into cardiac arrest. She went into a coma, and she died three hours later. Now, her husband was a believer. Her, her friend, the daughter, was a believer. They, they knew each other. And so this man went ballistic. This man who had just brought his wife in because she was complaining of heart pain a little bit ago is now dealing with her death. So he vows to avenge himself on this hospital. 
And he said that I'm going to take you down. I'm going to make sure you're not practicing medicine again, you loser. He comes back the next day after he has insisted that he's meet with the board of the hospital. And so he comes back in. But he and his daughter, while on the way, while on route, he's coming to his Christian senses. And he's realizing that what he's doing is wrong. So he came into this room, and this doctor is waiting to get lambasted by this guy. And yet this man walks over to him, and he shakes his hand, and he says that, it always says this, I better read it. The only way I'm going to live with any peace for the remainder of my life is to forgive you. So he did. Now, I want to read a little bit from you from, uh, for you from this book. This is what this guy says. Forgiveness does not require that you cease to feel the anger and resentment you so naturally experience. Not at all. This crucial distinction is what makes forgiveness humanly possible, albeit still strange and difficult. Now, do you believe that? That's a lie. That's a lie. This man should be ashamed for calling himself a Christian. That is a lie. Your forgiveness will make you feel exactly what he says. And why is it that it can do that? Because it is not humanly possible. That's only God that can do that. Only God that can make you that forgiving of an individual. And you should be that forgiving of an individual. You should not be harboring grudges in your heart. God's word is clear. That is wrong. I want to read you one more. And this is from this book. There's a man by the name of Ernie Casuto. He was a Dutch Jew, and he was Jewish, not a Christian, but while imprisoned in the Second World War in a German prison camp, he came to Christ. He was reading the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the Old Testament. And when he heard about that fourth man that appeared there and unbound them and set them free, it was just dawned on him. This is Christ. This is the Messiah. The Messiah was here. The Messiah has come. So he becomes a Christian. And as he's still there in his prison camp, God tells him, Ernie, forgive the Germans. And he's thinking, oh, I can't do this. I mean, this, these people, they killed my fiance. They've imprisoned me. They've killed all these people. But God persisted, and he did forgive the Germans. And he then began a ministry of speaking about this. One day, he gets a call from his wife after the, long after the war. And his wife said, we've gotten a phone call. It's from the commandant of the prison camp you were in. He wants you to come to his bedside. He's dying. And this is what, uh, this is what happened. There he was, his once cruel captor, now weak and struggling to breathe. Ernie tried to speak, but words failed. At that point, a voice from inside me urged, go kiss him. I could not believe what I had heard. Kiss him, but the voice would not keep quiet. Kiss him, I will protect you. Timidly, Ernie recalled, I leaned forward and kissed his forehead. He burst into tears. And as he wept, he apologized over and over 
for the wrongs he had done. Then I knew that he didn't just need my forgiveness. He needed God's mercy. I told him about Jesus, how the Jewish Messiah died to atone for the sins of the world. And right then and there, Ernest Casuto, this is himself, led his former jailer to Jesus. Walking away, Ernie thought again of these words from Matthew 5.44. The Lord has taught me another lesson on how to love my enemy. And this time, he has also taught my enemy to love me. The title of this message is The Gift of Forgiveness. As I said earlier, when you come with that rebuke, you come with forgiveness. It is a gift in your hand to the person that you want to repent. You're ready to give it to them. You should be. And so Christmas is all about forgiveness. Every bit of Christmas is about forgiveness. So that's why I thought it was just appropriate that today's message would be appropriate for us to talk about. Forgiveness. What I've just shared is what Jesus has done. And he says, you must do this as his child. You must do this. So I ask you to look into your heart, ask yourself if you are a forgiving person, and don't be satisfied with a pithy answer. Test it against the reality of whether you personally now hold grudges against people that should be forgiven, that should be given up. Because vengeance is God's. It's not yours. You are to forgive and let God be the judge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word, for the amazing power of your word to transform our lives. Uh, We want to do what it is that you call us to do, Lord. And we know that it is impossible in our flesh to do this. So we plead with you, Father, to send your Holy Spirit to fill us with a love for you, to fill us with a desire to do these difficult works of forgiveness. Father, you have set the standard there. You have forgiven the billions of dollars worth of debt owed you. All you ask is for us to forgive our fellow servants, our fellow sinners, uh, the meager offenses that they have against us. We ask you, Father, to show us, open our eyes to how great a gift Christ's death, his uh, recompense for that has been to us. That we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and have us to embrace forgiveness as the way of living for Christians. We ask you to have us to do this in a godly way, not a worldly way. Thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.